Let me pray as we begin this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, at the beginning of this school year, we unveiled our theme and our focus for the year, which is our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news, and our deep desire is that this year-long theme will help us to understand the good news of Jesus, courageously live out the good news of Jesus, and then be able to articulate that good news to the people around us with confidence. That's our hope. So to that end, we started the year with a four-week series on the fourfold gospel. I'm going to quiz you right now. Can you remember all four? I won't make you answer that out loud, but... Uh, We spoke about Jesus as our sanctifier. Uh, No, first, Savior. I got it wrong. Savior, sanctifier, healer, and coming king. Fourfold gospel. Savior, sanctifier, healer, coming king. We talked about how those are essential uh, aspects of Jesus for us to understand the good news. And with that basis of what the good news is, we take a turn for the next seven weeks to talk about what the good news is not. We do so by looking at heresies in the history of the church, as well as a couple modern heresies that we deal with today in a series called Heresies Old and Ever New. And we study these heresies, uh, and we do so because it's our hope and prayer that as we do this, it will solidify our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that it'll make us all aware of the ways in which heretical or or sort of wrong thinking can so easily seep into our understanding of God, of Jesus, and of the world. So what are heresies? It's kind of a nasty word, isn't it? Uh, What are heresies? Heresies are ways of thinking about God, Jesus, the Bible, humanity, the world, that are outside of what we would call orthodoxy or the standards that uh, the church has set for right belief. Those are what heresies are. And we know what these heresies are because the church has historically been challenged with these beliefs and have had to come together to decide whether these beliefs are good news or they are a distortion of the good news of Jesus. So as we we begin to talk about heresies, just a few caveats before we get into the first one. First, in my study so far, you need to know that most people who are called heretics throughout the church are not, they, they don't see themselves as heretics, okay? They are, they, they are often people who believe in God, who believe in Jesus, who believe in the Bible in heartfelt ways, and they are not often seeking to be malicious or destructive in the way that they're thinking. We are certainly not using this series as a means of demonizing or singling anybody out because of wrong belief. That's not what we're doing. What we want to do is encourage everyone towards right belief, and we do so humbly, okay? We do so humbly because we recognize that none of us on this side of heaven, have the corner on right belief about God. Even our best efforts, we're probably wrong somewhere. So this is not an us versus them type of endeavor. But that being said, right belief does indeed matter. There's a primary difference between those who identify as Christians and those who do not. And what is it? 
It's ultimately a matter of what we believe to be true, what we believe to be true. Second thing, second caveat, uh, we do not offer this series uh, because we are making some larger sort of meta-commentary on heretical behavior in this congregation right now, okay? So there's no big overarching message here. On the contrary, we're really grateful for a church that listens well, that lifts up uh, scripture as authority, that strives towards right belief. But that doesn't mean that we aren't susceptible. That doesn't mean that we aren't susceptible to wrong thinking, wrong belief. We have had to address heretical teaching before in this church, and it was very painful to do so. But it was the right thing to do because, number three, while we're not concerned about active heresy in the church at this time, we do deeply desire for each and every one of you to protect you from wrong thought, from heretical thought. Some heresies are, are a bit more benign in terms of how they're lived out in our lives, but most of them truly are poisonous. And they can do a lot of damage to communities and to individuals if they're allowed to continue. So by looking at historical heresies, we can identify those potholes in our faith journey and we can learn to avoid them. And then the fourth thing I want you to know is though, even though we're going to speak a ton about church history, you even heard a prayer today and, and in subsequent weeks on, on from, from figures throughout church history, we are not departing from our commitment to have scripture be central in what we're doing, okay? Uh, as we always do, we're going to preach from and study scripture as our way into right belief and into right practice. So with all of that said, let's begin with scripture, shall we? If I, I will invite you to stand as you're able for our scripture reading this morning. It's from John 14, verses 9 through 11. And I invite you to hear the words of Jesus himself with his disciples in the upper room the night before he was betrayed. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe because of the works themselves. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. So here's Jesus. He is fully present in a human body with his disciples in the upper room. And he explains to them his divinity. His divinity. And you can almost sense his exasperation coming through as you read it. Maybe even disappointment that these disciples have been with him throughout his ministry. And they still fail to understand his nature, don't they? They fail to understand the kind of relationship that Jesus the Son has with God the Father. That he is in the Father and the Father is in him. There is a oneness in that nature. I'm aware too that many of us can be with Jesus for a really long time and misunderstand this about Jesus too, right? We can fail to understand that he is 100% God, but he is also 100% human because in our post-industrial scientific minds, that adds up to 200%, doesn't it? 
And how can a person be 200%? That doesn't make any sense. So when Jesus uses those words, don't you believe? He is communicating that all disciples ought to believe that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. What D.A. Carson calls a mutual indwelling. 100% human, but also 100% God. Jesus seems to care in this passage and elsewhere very much that the disciples have a right belief about his nature. And I think he cares that we have a right belief about his nature as well. So there are various lists of heresies, okay? And we're going to go through a number of them in the weeks to come. Some of those lists have hundreds of different heresies. Some have a dozen or so. But what they all have in common, based on my study so far, is that the majority of heresies have to do with one thing, the thing that Jesus cares so much that his disciples have right, and that is the nature of Jesus. John W.C. Wand wrote an influential book in the 1960s called The Four Great Heresies of the Church, and all four of them have to do with the nature of Jesus. He doesn't even note the other heresies that don't have to do with the nature of Jesus. Now, the early church, uh, by the way, he calls these Christological heresies, Christological heresies, which is the word we're going to use today. The early church dealt with heresies about the soul and the body and scripture and sin, but the vast majority of troublesome beliefs that the church had to deal with were around Jesus and who he was. So that's what we're going to focus on here today to begin this series, the Christological heresies of the church and how they've dealt with them and how they're still operative here for us today. So the question you should be asking as I go through this is, What do I believe about the nature of Jesus? You're asking that about yourself. What do I believe about the nature of Jesus? What have I come to believe? How did I come to believe that? Let me quickly walk through five Christological heresies. You get five heresies today. This is exciting. Um, Throughout the church. The first is Arianism. Arianism. Arianism denies the full divinity of Jesus. It is named after a man named Arius who was born in the third century. He appears to have believed that Jesus was inferior to God the Father. Essentially that he was fully human, but he was not really God. He was challenged by the early church father Athanasius, and eventually the Nicene Creed directly addressed Arianism, stating that Jesus is, quote, of one substance with the Father, end quote. This may seem like splitting hairs to us here today, but I actually see Arianism at work all the time in our culture. Uh, I see an over-identification with Jesus' humanity, forsaking his divinity. I hear the phrase both inside and outside the church all the time that Jesus was a great moral teacher. That's a form of Arianism, to reduce him down to a great moral teacher, to say that he was a great man, but he was limited. If Arianism was true, it's not good news. Because if Jesus isn't divine then he's not worthy of our worship and our devotion. There would be no reason to come together and sing these hymns together if that wasn't true. Second Christological heresy heresy is docetism. Docetism Docetism is actually the inverse of Arianism. They deny the full humanity of Jesus, claiming that Jesus only seemed to be human, only appeared to be human. Um, The most egregious manifestation of this movement was one Apollinarius of Laodicea in the 4th century who boldly denied that Jesus possessed a human mind or soul. This was ruled as heretical in the Second Ecumenical Council in 381. 
By the way, this is mostly uh, a heresy that comes from Greek uh, folks, Greek-thinking folks, uh, which makes a lot of sense because Greeks had a lot of barriers to believing that God could have actually been human. doesn't really fit in their view of, of gods and goddesses, and it led them to believe that essentially Jesus was only a human from the neck down. That's what they believed, which was the least important part of a person anyways to a Greek person. And I see this today as well, an overemphasis on the divinity of Jesus, downplaying Jesus' humanity. Third Christological heresy is Eutychianism. Eutychianism, new word for you today, Eutychianism. It's named after a 5th century monastic superior named Eutychus. Eutychianism is a heresy that denies that there are two natures in Christ. Eutychus actually taught that Jesus' humanity was so united with his divinity that he could really not be considered a human in any real way anymore, but that his divinity was so united with his humanity that he really wasn't equal with God anymore either. Essentially, Jesus is something else other than human or God, is what Eutychus taught. This was named an official heretical teaching at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And it's a dangerous view because it denies Jesus of what makes him so special on both, in both directions, right? It denies both his humanity and his divinity. Why is that somebody worth following? Not good news. The fourth Christological heresy is Nestorianism. Nestorianism. It comes from a guy named, guess what, guess what his name is? Nestorius, there you go, of Constantinople, 5th century. Um, and basically, this one comes down to he claimed that Mary was not the mother of God, that she gave birth to the human of Jesus, but was not the mother of God, that essentially she gave birth to a human boy named Jesus who was essentially two people rather than one. If, if I could boil this down a little differently, these are not the words that he used, but he would probably say he was 50% human and 50% divine, but not 100 of either. This belief makes the human body of Jesus simply a vehicle for God to do his work, sort of like a paintbrush is the extension of, of a great painter to do his work. Believe it or not, despite being identified as a harmful heresy in the 6th century, there is still a Nestorian church that's active today in the Middle East and in South America. They do not recognize Mary uh, in any significant way, and they continue to downgrade the importance of the human body since it was the weaker nature of Jesus. And then the last one. Everybody still with me? Nobody's sleeping. This is great. Okay, fifth one, Theopashitism. Theopashitism. Theopashitism is a heresy that showed up in the 6th century that asked the question, who suffered, which, which member of the Trinity suffered on the cross? That's the question they asked. Now, it's obvious that, human, that, that Jesus, as a human, the human part of the Trinity, suffered and died on the cross. We know that that's true. But Theopashitism takes it further to say that God and actually the entire Trinity died on the cross, that God died. This is an extremely dangerous view to hold that has no biblical basis whatsoever. And despite all its danger and its lack of biblical basis, it is a view that shows up in our contemporary hymns and songs all the time. <laughs> that Jesus, as God, that God died on the cross. Yes, God suffered and died in his humanity on the cross, but his nature is unchanging. It's impassable. God dying is not good news. Not good news. So, I'm going to try and illustrate these five as best I can, okay? Um, 
if yellow uh, represents humanity and blue represents divinity, Arianism sees Jesus as yellow because it denies his divinity. And then Docetism sees him as blue because it denies his humanity. With me so far? Eutychianism would be like green um, because humanity and divinity blend together to make something entirely different. Okay? Nestorianism would be very distinctly half yellow and half blue with divinity and humanity being part of Jesus but not being integrated at all. And then theopashitism would be like blue, then yellow, then blue, and then absent because Jesus' nature changes based on suffering and he vacates both his humanity and his divinity in his death on the cross. As you look at those sort of icons, I just want you to know that none of these depictions are good news. None of them are good news. They are distorted gospels. They are stilted and truncated views of Jesus, who is the center of our faith and is the good news that that we and the world so desperately long for. So if I had to try and depict Jesus in a faithful way, it's always dangerous to do so, I'd use like a gradient or maybe even tie-dye, if you will. Humanity and divinity are both there equally. And there are times when they sort of bleed together into one another, but they are distinct and yet well integrated. So the early church spent a lot of time bringing clarity to the person of Jesus, trying to paint a picture like this. And the best representation of that is in the Chalcedonian Creed. It's a statement that sets forth what we are to believe and not to believe about the nature of Jesus. This creed was the fruit of a very large council that took place from October 8th to November 1st in 1451 in the city of Chalcedon. And it's sort of the standard for for orthodox uh, uh, biblical teaching on the person of Jesus, and, and it has been ever since, for all major branches of Christianity, by the way. There are five main truths which came out of the Council of Chalcedon, and they're summarized uh, as we talk about the incarnation. The first is that Jesus has two natures. He is God, and he's human. The second is that each nature is full and complete. He's fully God, and he is fully human. The third is that each nature remains distinct. The fourth is that Christ is only one person. It's not divided. And then fifth, that things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Jesus Christ. That's what came out of this council. If we can have these truths somewhat clear in our hearts and our minds, then I think we're seeing Jesus about as clearly as we are able. If we miss any of those things, then we're liable to a really warped view, and that's not going to serve us well. So my invitation to you this morning, after all that information, is to assess how these warped views may have seeped into our understanding of Jesus. Have we failed to recognize his two natures? In what ways do we unnecessarily divide Jesus? Do we lean too heavily into his humanity or his divinity? In what ways do we separate Jesus from God? Perhaps we're Philip today, with Jesus leaning over to us, with not a little pain in his voice, but also great compassion, saying, geez, you've been with me this long and you still don't get it? You don't get that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? Because you see, Philip, 
had been with Jesus. He had seen him make a meager meal of some fish and bread into food for over 5,000 people, multiple times, by the way. That's something only somebody who has a divine nature could do. He saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, walk on water, forgive sin, heal sickness. That is all God stuff, isn't it? But then he also saw Jesus get down on the floor and wash his feet. He saw Jesus weep. He saw Jesus tired and weary. Those are all human things. He saw Jesus' full humanity and divinity. He should have known this nature because he saw it. He lived it. Can we say the same for ourselves? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard explained that this is a tension between transcendence and imminence. Transcendence being that which is fully beyond the human experience, knowledge, and comprehension. Imminence being that which is here and present and tactile and absolutely real and available. Kierkegaard says that when we comprehend the nature of Christ, we need to set aside objectivity and subjectivity and embrace a highly centered paradox. Two things which are diametrically opposite, but indeed true and held together in Jesus. Jesus is at one time the most incomparably holy thing in existence, and yet he is also the most real. He is so holy that we couldn't possibly even dream of gazing at him for fear of our complete undoing, and yet he grabs our cheeks in his hands and he forces our eyes to look into his eyes so that we see our shared humanity with him. You see, what these various heresies do is they let go of the paradox, right? They refuse to hold transcendence and imminence in tension. They clutch on to objectivity and subjectivity and explain away the character of Jesus that the writers of the New Testament so painstakingly record and even give their lives for, that this Jesus is wholly beyond comprehension and is viscerally human in all the ways that we are viscerally human, short of falling into sin. So why does this all matter? I think because there are indicators that Christological heresies are not a thing of the past. In fact, they appear in many ways to be on the rise. In a 2022 survey from LifeWay Research, it showed that professing Christians' understanding of Jesus is slipping, as more than half of them held heretical views about him. According to the survey, only 54% agreed, these are professing Christians, by the way, only 54% agreed that there is one true God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. An astonishing 73% agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being that was created by God. Given this belief, it's not surprising that 43% affirmed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not really God. Like most of the heretics noted today, Those people who are surveyed are professing believers who value the Bible, but they have warped thinking about Jesus. They're unwilling to hold that paradox of his transcendence and his imminence. So friends, let me encourage you to explore your functional view of the nature of Jesus. We must hold in tension his imminence and his transcendence or else we're missing out on the good news of Jesus. Because it is good news that Jesus identifies with you as a human, but is also worthy of your worship as God. That's good news. Don't take the easy way out. 
Don't let go of the paradox. Don't cut corners in your understanding of Jesus. Let me close with an illustration that I came across recently. I was reading about something called Hongi. Hongi. Hongi is a traditional greeting for the Maori people. The Maori people are the indigenous people of, of New Zealand and the surrounding area. It's a pretty staggering greeting. Um, some of you are looking at this and you're already feeling a little bit uncomfortable. What happens is two people greet and they, they shake hands and they put the other hand on the other person's shoulder and they press their foreheads and their noses together and they breathe in each other's faces. This is their greeting. Why do they do this? Well, in their creation narrative, much like our creation narrative, their creator breathed life into the very first human, and this is a memorial to their creator. While it's become popularized uh, in many ways, in in New Zealand, sort of the same way as a a handshake would be for us, the more traditional hongis would happen at community events and, and gatherings, and it could take several minutes in this stance. Why would it take several minutes? Well, because traditionally... As you hold this stance and you share breath with one another, you would also recount your ancestors until you found a common ancestor between the two of you. There are several Christian groups in New Zealand who have appropriated this practice into their worship because it reminds them of their creator God and their shared humanity. And for me, this is a radiant image of imminence and transcendence all at once. It is quite literally as close as two people could be to one another. But they are talking about something that is well beyond them, something well outside the here and now of their life. When Jesus is in the upper room and he's telling Philip and his disciples, I am one with the Father, he is doing so as a full-fledged human. That is a perpetual form of godly hongi, I think. He's talking about his relationship with God in this way, but he doesn't stop there. Because in John 14, 20, this is very important, everybody. He tells his disciples, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Friends, when we understand the nature of Jesus as fully God and fully human, transcendent and imminent, we realize that we are invited into a similar relationship that he has with the Father, a hangi with him. We are invited to share breath with him. We are embraced. We experience his absolute nearness, and he also shows us his transcendence. He reminds us that he is so far beyond this mortal life and this mortal body But if we're wrong about Jesus' nature, that's what we miss out on. So hold the tension of imminence and transcendence. In fact, let Jesus show it to you and let him hold it for you. May it be so. Amen. I'll invite you to stand with me throughout this sermon series as a response We're going to share in our common faith together through the words of the Apostles' Creed. We could do the Nicene Creed today, which has much more to say about the nature of Jesus. But we use the Apostles' Creed because the Apostles' Creed is a very, very special creed because it is accepted by every branch 
of Christ's followers together. We share in our common faith through the words of the Apostles' Creed. They're up on the screen. If you know them, uh, you feel free to say them uh, with us. Use the screen as you need to. Let's affirm our common faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Would you stay standing, please, for our closing hymn, hymn number 603, Christ, Be My Leader.